Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guests today are passionate about communication, and they not only are consultants on the subject, but have written a book about it. Rebecca Weintraub and Stephen Lewis are authors of Incredible Communication, Uncover the Invaluable Art of Selling Yourself, published by Bloomsbury Business and available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Rebecca Weintraub and Stephen Lewis and their communications consulting company, which offers coaching, communication, culture assessment, Zoom meeting facilitation, a remote work engagement curriculum, communications ROI assessments, and workshops, Go to IncredibleCom with two M's, IncredibleCom.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at IncredibleCom. And Rebecca and Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before questions on the book itself, how did the two of you get together? Well, it, it is kind of an interesting story, especially in the world of COVID. I had had an idea to do a book at a time when I think we were all sort of questioning fake news and credibility in general and and everybody's credibility and and right seemed wrong and and up seemed down and so i i felt like it's not something i always wanted to do but i felt like a book needed to be written on the subject and so how people could be better at what they do and more credible put it out there didn't didn't have the response that i wanted and i kind of put the the project to bed for a couple for about a year and a half and then i decided that I really want it to be a little more academic. I want it to retain the conversational tone, but I want it to be grounded in, in, in just more academia. And I searched for a, a partner on this project, and I was so fortunate enough to have found Rebecca. Now, you have to understand that this was February of 2020. We literally met once in the USC cafeteria uh, <laughs> and did not see each other again <laughs> until the book was completely finished. <laughs> well, she clearly and remembered you. 2021. <laughs> so you were, as you say, you were trolling campuses and you came across Rebecca in the cafeteria met her <laughs> once and somehow the two of you connected probably on some app like Tinder or something. And they're all sitting. No, making, no, it was literally, old, it, it was old school. <laughs> I mean, it was literally like putting out a letter saying, I have an idea for a book that I think is, is timely. And there was a lot of serendipity involved. And as Rebecca will tell you, she was coming to a point where she was considering retirement and she was thinking about a book as well. So it was a beautiful uh, melding of ideas and time. The COVID irony is when Stephen was looking to find an academic to partner with, he wanted somebody that was geographically desirable because he wanted to be able to work, you know, face to face. COVID intervened, and I mean, we had Zoom meetings every week, and we were shipping things, you know, about book drafts and chapter revisions back and forth. But in truth, I could have been on the French coast. It was probably the best example of virtual partnership that you could come up with. And we weren't trying. It was not it was not intended to be an experiment. Necessity was, is the mother of invention. And that was absolutely the case. Yeah. That <laughs> this was time. true. Rebecca, yes. did you 
will you confirm with us the story that Stephen just gave us about how the you met in the cafeteria the one time and the rest is all cyber? Okay, so it was Morton Fig, the restaurant, not the cafeteria. <laughs> um, he, um, when he he came to campus, we had lunch. He was in the middle of a move, and um, a little crazed. But in general, it worked. He had sent me the book proposal, which had some chapters. And, and we talked about my reaction and, and my thoughts. And no, we were not going to write a textbook. But he wanted to know what my writing style was. And you know, I, I had academic stuff, although I was, I'm not really, I was not really a researcher, but I had you know, some articles. So the only thing I had was non-academic was a series of essays that I have done nothing with for a book called Cuts from the Slice of Life that is about my cancer experience. And so I sent those that, I don't know, 10 chapters, however many it was. They're essays, so they're you know, kind of short. To Stephen, who procrastinated on reading them <laughs> because he figured it was going to be Debbie Downer. And, you know, who needs that? But he finally told me he went, he took his kit, he took his iPad with the book on it and went out by the pool. And I'm not sure that he didn't have a Bloody Mary, but he didn't say that <laughs> and, and read it and called me and said, Oh, this is funny. I saw that was the idea. Exactly. But but in all seriousness, one of my friends said, you know, which chapters are yours? I said, they're all mine and they're all Stevens. Exactly. And uh, but we did discover that our voices are very conversational and very similar. And at this point, we could probably pick out some parts that I wrote or he wrote because we have particular turns of phrase that nobody will notice except us. But for the most part, it is um, a Vulcan mind melt. <laughs> I was going to use, uh, I was gonna use that us. term and you beat me to it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was really uh, impressive the way Rebecca took what was obviously a very serious uh, and, and emotional topic and turned it into such a, a conversational, approachable way of dealing with it. And that was so much of what I wanted this book to be. I, I didn't want it. My background is, is primarily in Hollywood and entertainment. I didn't really want to do that kind of a light book because I think that the topic itself is pretty serious, but yet you don't want to go so far that it comes off like you're lecturing somebody. You want it to feel like it is, it, it's, it's a living document for people. There are a lot of books that are out about communication and you should do this and you should, shouldn't do that. And, you know, ad nauseum. We wanted to not only say these are the things that you should do, but, and not like, not why, like, because it'll make people like you more, but here's what the research tells us. And we have, I think, more footnotes in this book that I have in my doctoral dissertation. That's stunning. And it's not that we really expect people to go to the journal or the article, although, you know, everything is there to make it easy to do. But we wanted to highlight the research 
communication research doesn't make it into the popular business press like business research does. It'll show up in Harvard Business Review and Forbes and Fortune. And I mean, a lot of that gets translated and incorporated. Unfortunately, the communication literature doesn't do that. And it's really unfortunate because there is so much that we know about individual communication, about organizational communication, about how all of these communication-related phenomena work in our lives and in our business lives. And we wanted to make that accessible. And I think I read more academic journals in the writing of this book than I may have done when I was in grad school working on the DIS. It's amazing. At and least you, that's what it felt like. I'm not you, sure if it was true, but that's what it felt like. And then you had to convert it into prose that people could understand, conversational mm-hmm. prose. Yeah. Now, something that Stephen said, and I want to pick up on that because it almost seems, without you both realizing it, the reason he had put off reading the material you sent him was an assumption on his part, and that's a communication failure, I would think. In other words, you sent a material to read, about your cancer, your experiences with cancer. And he assumed that it was going to be kind of a a downer, Mm -hmm. so he didn't want to read it. So that was an assumption in his head that it was going to be a downer. Then when he actually read it and he found it humorous, isn't that part of what the communication problem is on a local level between people, on a national level, on an international level? It's it's a perception or a misunderstanding or or an anticipation of something that's not there. Well, there's two points there. And one is it's... It's a little bit overused phrase, but it's true. Perception is reality. And what someone's perception of you is, is 100% correct to them. And there's generally not too much you can do about that. You can, you can change the hue a bit, but you can't really change the perception of, of who that is. And the other thing we talk about in the book is, is the selection of stories and storytelling as a reflection of who you are and where you come from. And your actual process of choosing that story is saying a lot about who you are in addition to the message that's built into the story. So when somebody does present to me a story about their struggles with cancer, without reading it, I have immediately made some preconceived ideas that this is what she wants me to read as a reflection of who she is. And it's a mistake in in the sense that I'm judging a book by its cover, if you'll excuse the expression. <laughs> but 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 it's true, and and it's touching it's touching things in all of us that we're not even aware of because we get so much. There is so much input happening that to really frame that context in which those those stories are presented has a lot to do with what we hear and how we and and, and how we digest all that information. One of the foundational chapters in the book is called Perception is Reality. But our perspective is their perception is your reality. And you need to understand their perceptions as best you can um, in order to be able to persuade, to have a chance at changing them, at understanding maybe how they came to those perceptions. And that's that's tied um, very intimately into your credibility because your credibility doesn't live in you. 
it lives in others' perceptions of you and how you work that, how you understand it, how you communicate, whether it's in a meeting, whether it's in a presentation, you know, whether it's, you know, an interview, the more you can understand about what their perceptions are, how they got there. We're very data-driven, and you see it in the book, but data doesn't mean doing, you know, surveys necessarily and focus groups and, you know, a variety of research methodologies. It's also watching and listening and understanding the culture and paying attention to all of the little signals that people put out and being conscious of them so that you using them, those, those signals to understand where these people are coming from. So if I am going in for a, for, to a client, for a client proposal, and I'm going in and making the presentation, you know, I want to try to know as much about that organization, about their culture, about the not, I mean, obviously I want to understand their business that's necessary, but not sufficient. And that's usually where people stop. And instead, I want to build my credibility capital by having them recognize how thoroughly I understand how they work, what their structure is, what's their communication culture, looking at all of the signals I can possibly gather as research, as data, which I can then use to be more credible in their eyes as I make my presentation or design my proposal and such like that. Isn't that also a situation if you're a potential employee and you go for a job interview, you research the company or organization as thoroughly as you can, get a sense of their culture, get a sense of how they present themselves to the world, get a sense of, if you can, of some of the inner workings, and you get a step ahead of the person that just comes in and says, well, I'm qualified. Well, what do you know about our company? Well, I don't know that much about your company. Well, that's not going to help in the hiring process. There, there really are no excuses these days. I mean, there is so much information available that you cannot afford to be lazy when it comes to doing your homework and understanding the context and the culture in which you are expected to perform in. Something that Rebecca said earlier, and the reason I remember it is because I'm listening, which of course my wife accuses me of only listening when I do the show. So I will try and stay in that realm. But it's the ability- You can't to- help it. You're a husband. <laughs> exactly. So, oh boy, wow. <laughs> sorry, Stephen. It's just the way it is. But, yeah. <laughs> but if, you, if you listen, boy, do you pick up cues, boy, do you pick up information, data, as you mentioned before, and you can formulate an approach, whether again, you're applying for a job or you're a consultant and you want to pitch a client or in other realms of business. It's the listening that I think is lacking in a lot of interaction in the world. Not that people don't listen. As they're listening, they are formulating their response. And so they're listening with an eye toward how am I going to refute this or support this or give my story around that? as opposed to using that interaction with what has often been called active listening, but listening as a 
way of understanding what is what the other person is saying and such, and then following it up with why questions. Because what you really want to understand is not just what somebody's perception is, but how did they get there? Because if this is something that I want to address, an issue or a campaign, I need to understand what's behind the perception, what drove the perception, the stories behind that. Because if I want to change their perception, that's where I need to go. I need to go to where to their why. What we do instead is take what I'm going to use the word argument in the classic sense. Take their argument and say, how can I refute this? Which translates into, how do I tell them they're wrong? <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> I give you back your wife. So I mean, I tell a, I tell a story, um, and, and, and I tell it so much, I've used it so much, I don't actually remember if it's in the book or not. <laughs> tell it anyway, um, Rebecca, go ahead. But um, my husband, who is retired, has been retired for many years, is an engineer by training, a neatnik and an organizer. So this is bad to start with. And every once in a while, and this still goes well, on. Wait a second, from your perspective, not from his. Oh, no, no, it's bad. Trust me. Okay, okay. But he will, he'll, he'll say, Rebecca, and I'll say, yes, Jerry says, would you come here? And where are you? I'm in the kitchen. Okay, yeah, this is getting worse. And I go into the kitchen and he flings open the doors of the refrigerator and he says, can you tell me what's wrong? <laughs> and I say, did the refrigerator doors close? Because in Rebecca land, refrigerator goodness means the door closed. That much chemistry, I understand. And he says, well, of course the door's closed. So I'm going, so what's wrong? He opens them up again. And he says, you put this here. Why did you put that there? Because there was space. But this other thing is what goes there. But we don't have that other thing. He said, oh, so you'll just put anything anywhere where there's space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as long as the door's closed. Right. Nobody sees it. Now, the issue here is we're in a do loop. He has his perspective of what a refrigerator should look like. And one of these days, I'm going to come back from a trip and the friggin' thing's going to be alphabetized. <laughs> but he, he, has, he keeps making the same argument. And it's not getting to me. And so we go through this with cupboards and a variety of things. And he has not succeeded, despite 30 some odd years of effort, to get me to change my approach. And I don't know that there is, I don't know that there is an approach that would work. I, I'll give him credit for that. But what he is doing is using what is persuasive to him. To persuade me. Order in the fridge as opposed to order right. in the court. Yeah. It, this has to go here. This has to go there. Well, what if there's yep. no, what if there, a B is not there? Can I put C there because it has to go somewhere and there's some space? No, because eventually B will show up. <laughs> you know, I, I like to say that the best communication is where you understand the motivation of the listener. 
And is if you can get to the core of why they should care about what you are telling them, then you have made the right kind of communication. Is that possible in a marriage? <laughs> Especially a long-term well, one. Right would say no. <laughs> I saw Rita Rudner in a show last night, and I know why she's so successful. Because she's married to all of our husbands. <laughs> <laughs> and she does it without any anger. She doesn't come across oh, yeah, as no. angry. Right, it, right. I mean, it was great, but I was with three other girlfriends and we kept looking at each other going, okay, yeah, that's Rich. Oh, no, no, that's John. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of marriage, and this ties in with it, from your data that you researched from the book, and both Steve and, and Rebecca, you can answer this. How important is the personal meeting as opposed to, as we talked about Zoom because of COVID, you guys wrote the book pretty much using the internet and Zoom and other means of communication, email, PDFs, et cetera. But how important is the personal meeting in, in today's world? Assuming you can have a personal meeting. Right. So, so let's, let's assume we are emerging right. and, and we're going back to some degree of nor normalcy. Although I still think there's going to be a lot of Zoom going on. It's just simply easier in, in a lot of respects. And, and, and I think that Zoom is a great eliminator. It's not a great hirer because with Zoom, you can, you can kind of get a sense of a person. You're actually seeing almost a broadcast of a person, which is very one-dimensional. Um, so, so there's a lot that you are missing. But you may get enough to know that this is not the right person for you. So as this all progresses, I see this being used all the time, but not closing the deal. So the Even and I have written a lot about communication in the virtual office, in the hybrid office. And this is this is a slightly different take on what on the question you asked, Ira. But what gets lost in the business setting? when you're, even if you're hybrid, when you don't have everybody together is you lose the spontaneous connections, the, the hall talk, the, you know, grab a cup of coffee, want to go grab a sandwich. There is those interactions, which are unscripted television, if you will, have a great deal of impact on people's morale, on their productivity, on retention. And companies tried, God bless them, there was a lot of creativity in trying to recreate those things with games and, you know, everybody grab a beer and we'll have a big, you know, Zoom party and such. But it isn't the same. And I think one of the challenges businesses are going to have is now that people have gotten used to this work from home notion, there's going to be a lot of reluctance to come back. Companies are seeing why it's important to have them come back. Although I think you're going to see a lot more hybrid. You're in the office three days a week. You're, you know, such like that. Everybody is there, you know, the second Wednesday of the month or, you know, whatever. But that's going to require even this hybrid a very close attention to communication, to facilitated conversations, to making sure you have those connections. Because 
You know, people talk about being loyal to a company and how much they love the company they work for, but they don't love a company. There is no such thing as a company to love. You can't see, touch, feel, taste, or smell it. What they're talking about are their colleagues and the relationships and the way they can work together and the ideas they can come up with. And you can do that even when you're working with people you don't particularly like. I mean, that's, you know, we're not going to love everybody. Everybody isn't going to love us. We can still have that intellectual um, magic. And I think that's what COVID cost companies. It's the demise of the water cooler. It is. And I think it made it easier for people to leave. I think that's one of the reasons you see how hard the retention problem is. And there are other elements, obviously, you know, lots of jobs available, lots of money getting thrown at people. I mean, mean, it wasn't just one thing, but you've loosened or cut the connective tissue that keeps people feeling emotionally engaged. And, And I'm not talking about relationships in the classic sense. I'm just talking about the way, how it feels when you and your coworkers are in the zone, you know, and you're, and you're working on a project, you've just come up with an idea and now you, how do we get the boss to agree to it? And that builds the connective tissue that creates those deep relationships that we describe as I love working for this company. Stephen? Yeah. The moments when I did see it through the few years of COVID were in the three to four minutes ahead of a scheduled Zoom meeting. When people would come on a little bit earlier and have the chance to, it was completely impromptu because you never knew who would be early in in that situation, but it was an out of the spotlight, I'm not the center of attention, chance to exchange ideas without that fear of failure, without that fear that the light is on me, the camera is on me by my boss or somebody that I really care about their judgment of me. In those moments were the only times where where I began to see a, you know, a fragment of that camaraderie that, you know, how's it going? You know, how's your kids? This project came up. I'm not so sure if I can do that, whatever it is. No one has been able to figure out how to sort of structure that deep, that deconstructed moment in a Zoom situation. But that was, that was practically the only time that you had that, that water cooler atmosphere for a long, long time. And, and the loss of that and that the loss of those connective relationships is such a huge part of why you would stay with a company in the first place. So it, you know, I it, hadn't thought about this, Stephen, before you said that. We were able to write this book without being present together. You know, we we met on Zoom, we you know, we talked about our, you know, Stephen and I discovered in the course of the writing that we were in violent agreement on a number of things. <laughs> And we were able to have those conversations and everything on Zoom. I do not know that if we hadn't had that first face-to-face lunch, that we would have 
We might still have agreed to do the project, but that lunch was instrumental in starting to build that connective tissue. You know, we discovered we were two nice little Jewish kids from the West Side. We'd both gone to UCLA. I had done a little bit of consulting for Fox and Sony. And, you know, we had these, you know, little things in, you know, in common. But we were able to, in Stephen's language, sort of build our new joint story out of our first lunch. And I just don't know if we would have been able to do that if we'd had to have our first meeting on Zoom. Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. My (laughs) guest has been Rebecca Weintraub and Stephen Lewis. They're authors of Incredible Communication, Uncover the Invaluable Art of Selling Yourself. Published by Bloomberry Business, available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Rebecca Weintraub and Stephen Lewis and their communications consulting company, go to IncredibleCom with two M's, IncredibleCom.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at IncredibleCom. There's a lot of secrets in this book about communication that I think a grad student or somebody first going out into the workplace would really, this would give them a leg up in a lot of different ways. And they would not be making that trial and error mistakes that people invariably make in communication. We think this is a fabulous graduation gift. (laughs) Rebecca and Stephen, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.